0: It was a beautiful Friday afternoon, but John F. Kennedy was tired of smiling. The crowds in Dallas seemed endless. True, they were there for him and Jackie, and it was always nice to be honored. But this was the fourth Texas city he'd visited in two days, and he was eager to get to Austin to finish his trip.
1: The bright November sun gleamed off the black paint of their Lincoln limousine, making Kennedy wince. Nellie Connolly, the wife of the Texas governor, turned to Kennedy and said, Mr. President, you can't say Dallas doesn't love you. John
0: nodded. She was right about that. No, you can't, he said in response. They were the last words he ever spoke.
1: All of a sudden, he felt a very bad pain. John reached his hands up to his neck. And then, everything went black
0: One hour later, a man in his late 30s walked across the empty main street of Tyler, Texas. He crossed the avenue, clad in his fine suit and clean-cut hair, and pushed right on through the door of a beauty salon.
1: The women inside kept talking, but their heads swiveled in his direction. The man's wife was inside. She said his name, but he didn't respond. He didn't even glance at her. The man walked through to the tiny windowless office in the back of the salon and closed the door. The women all looked at each other in confusion. They didn't know what he knew, that their president was dead.
0: The man picked up the phone and asked the operator to connect him to a number. He listened to it ring. The moment elongated. He thought about what it meant to be alive instead of not. Suddenly, the line connected. The other side said, you've reached the Houston FBI.
1: This is George H.W. Bush, the man responded. I have a suspect to report for the assassination of President John F. Kennedy.
0: Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm Carter Roy.
1: I'm Molly Brandenburg. Every week, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can listen to Conspiracy Theories and all other originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: This is our second and final episode on the Bush family. Last week, we profiled the official biographies of Prescott Bush, George Herbert Walker Bush, and George W. Bush as they intersected with major events in American history. Through the stories of these men, we witnessed the rise of a major political dynasty.
1: This week, we'll explore some of the most potent conspiracy theories surrounding these major figures in American political life.
0: We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. There's one thing we can all agree on. Dealing with pests is a pain. But luckily, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. So if your home or business has pests, don't stress it, Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T E R M I N I X.com.
2: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit AnytimeFitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details.
1: Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in LA, and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets, and sometimes, their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show.
0: The Bush family has been one of the most influential dynasties in modern American life. Through their political victories, their alliances, and the pivotal events they took part in, their legacy is now woven into the tapestry of history.
1: Perhaps inevitably then, there are many conspiracy theories associated with the family. Today, we're going to explore three of them.
0: Conspiracy theory number one. While attending artillery training school in 1918, Prescott Bush plundered Geronimo's grave and stole the Apache leader's skull. Then he brought the morbid trophy back to the Skull and Bones Clubhouse near the Yale campus, where it remains today.
1: Conspiracy theory number two. In the early 1960s, Prescott's son, George Herbert Walker Bush, secretly worked for the CIA. What's more, he was in Dallas the day JFK was assassinated and acted there on behalf of his CIA handlers.
0: In conspiracy theory number three, George W. Bush fought the Iraq War for oil instead of his administration's stated reasons about weapons of mass destruction and regime changes. After all the civilian and military deaths and the displacement of millions of Iraqis, The true purpose of that war was to make a few people a lot of money.
1: Let's start with our first conspiracy, that Prescott Bush desecrated the resting place of the leader of an oppressed people when he stole the skull of Geronimo. It sounds sinister and outrageous, but the evidence is compelling.
0: Yale has long been a school of the elite. But that doesn't mean that the students there are immune to college hijinks. One of the school's most opaque and prestigious societies, Skull and Bones, has a game that they call Crooking.
1: If you think that sounds like a game invented by the Simpsons cartoon character Mr. Burns, you wouldn't be far off. Crooking was created by Bonesmen as a way to get back at rival societies. The game involved stealing valuable items from their rivals in an escalating attempt to one-up each other.
0: In short, it was a prank war, and it fostered a culture of appropriation and theft.
1: What's more, Skull and Bones has long had rituals associated with human bones. At least one archival photograph exists from the turn of the 20th century depicting bonesmen posed around a human skull and two femurs. Their logo is even a skull and crossbones.
0: As recently as 2001, a journalist secretly video recorded an initiation ceremony in the courtyard of the group's clubhouse that allegedly showed bonesmen carrying human skulls and other large bones.
1: This was the culture Prescott Bush found himself immersed in when enrolled at Yale in 1913. He entered a world where, in order to be accepted by his peers, he had to abide by their strange games and rituals, even if those rituals involved disrespecting human remains. On
0: June 7, 1918, a Yale student and Skull and Bones member named Winter Mead wrote a letter to another member of the society. The note, scrawled in cursive on Yale's letterhead, claimed that a party of Bonesmen had unearthed the skull of Apache leader Geronimo from his grave in Fort Sill,
1: Oklahoma. What's more, Meade cheerily declared that the skull was now safely inside the Skull and Bones Clubhouse, known within the society as the Tomb, Meade went on, saying that Geronimo's femurs and the horn from his saddle had been stolen from his grave and brought to the tomb as well.
0: We should note that Meade's account didn't mention Prescott Bush in any way. But other accounts did. Prescott was implicated in the theft by both a Skull and Bones logbook from 1919 as well as a history kept by a bonesman in the 1920s. Alone, that's pretty damning evidence. But on top of that, Prescott served at Fort Sill during the First World War, putting him square at the scene of the
1: alleged crime. Further supporting the theory that Skull and Bones is in possession of Geronimo's skull is the fact that as recently as 2001, the Secret Society had a human skull on display in a glass case at the very entrance to their clubhouse. And, They openly called it Geronimo.
0: If true, this is a heartbreaking resting place for the bones of a Native American leader. And Geronimo's descendants agree. In 2007, Harlan Geronimo, the great-grandson of the Apache leader, offered his DNA to test against the bones in the society's possession. But Skull and Bones refused to cooperate.
1: Harlan genuinely believed that his great-grandfather's remains had been disturbed. As part of Apache tradition, he wanted to return the bones to the Gila Wilderness, a national forest in New Mexico, so that Geronimo's spirit could travel on to the next world.
0: So much was the anguish of Geronimo's descendants that on February 17, 2009, they sued Skull and Bones over his remains. The day they submitted their lawsuit was the 100th anniversary of the day Geronimo died in the custody of the U.S. Army. The suit demanded that his remains be returned wherever they were, and that his grave be moved from Fort Sill,
1: Oklahoma to the Gila Wilderness where Geronimo was born. In response to this lawsuit, Yale University was quick to note that the Skull and Bones Clubhouse was not technically on the Yale campus. They claimed this meant that they had no control over what the society kept there.
0: One year later, the lawsuit was dismissed.
1: Skull and Bones won. The judge presiding over the suit ruled that the law which formed its basis didn't apply in this case. The regulation was called the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act.
0: The reason that it didn't apply was due to an unfortunate technicality. The law didn't retroactively cover graves desecrated or robbed before 1990.
1: Thus, skull and bones didn't have to turn over anything, even if they robbed Geronimo's grave because the law didn't apply to them in 1918.
0: Sadly, we may never know the true story, Geronimo's grave was covered in concrete by the U.S. Army in 1928, and they built a pyramid out of stone as the marker.
1: However, as far as we know, a human skull still resides in the entryway of the Skull and Bones Clubhouse. But whether it's Geronimo's skull, well, you can't exactly prove that without joining the society or crooking it from them.
0: That said, we do know that Prescott Bush was at Fort Sill at the time of the alleged crime, and the amount of circumstantial evidence from reliable sources makes me think that it's probably Geronimo's skull that Prescott took. And besides, a member of the society at the time put the theft itself in writing.
1: But they didn't name Prescott Bush specifically.
0: Even then, there were other reports within the society that did name him. And members of Skull and Bones have privately made claims that Geronimo's skull is in their
1: foyer. Fair enough. But they could have simply been boasting. Geronimo was a legendary leader, as well as an example of Native American resistance against the U.S. government. So to the elite members of Skull and Bones, possession of his bones would have meant bragging rights. But beyond all of that, What convinces me that this theory is untrue is that there are historical accounts which indicate that the Fort Sill Grave in 1918 would have been overgrown and very difficult to find. So perhaps Prescott Bush did steal someone's skull. It just wasn't Geronimo's. Maybe, but
0: the grave wouldn't have been impossible to find, and it would have been highly desirable to the members of Skull and Bones. Geronimo's descendants went so far as to spend an enormous amount of time and money to launch a lawsuit against the society, which they seem to have lost on a cruel technicality. So for these reasons, and the ones we discussed earlier, I'm giving this theory a 9 out of 10.
1: And I'm giving this theory an 8 out of 10. It's horribly plausible, and falls neatly into the themes of privilege and race in America. But I'm docking at a point because Prescott could have easily lied about whose skull he stole simply to better his reputation.
0: Well, it's unnerving to think that anyone would be willing to disrespect the dead for social capital. If true, the robbery demonstrates with awful clarity how the Bush family prioritized their desires over the well being of others. And that egocentric lesson might have trickled down to his son, H.W. Bush a man who might have helped assassinate a president from a rival political party.
1: Next up, we examine whether H.W. played a role in the death of John F. Kennedy.
0: Hi, listeners. Here's a show I think you'll enjoy. When it comes to love, every story is unique. Some play out like fairy tales, seemingly meant to be. Others defy the odds to achieve happily ever after. In Our Love Story, the new Spotify original from Parcast, you'll discover the many pathways to love as told by the actual couples who found them. Every Tuesday, Our Love Story celebrates the ups, downs, and pivotal moments that turn complete strangers into perfect pairs. Each episode offers an intimate glimpse inside a real-life romance with couples recounting the highlights and hardships that define their love. Whether it's a chance encounter, a former friendship, or even a former enemy, our love story proves that love can begin and blossom in the most unexpected ways. Follow our love story free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Terminix,
1: Now, back to the story.
0: Our second theory begins many years after Prescott Bush's alleged grave robbing and focuses on his son, H.W. Bush.
1: At 2.38 in the afternoon of November 22, 1963, Vice President Lyndon Johnson took the oath of office in a passenger compartment of Air Force One and became the 36th President of the United States. Next to him was Jacqueline Kennedy, the wife of President John F. Kennedy. JFK had been assassinated two hours prior, and Jackie was still wearing her pink suit from earlier that day, now stained with her husband's blood.
0: This moment in time, where a vice president and a first lady stood together in the wake of a monumental tragedy so that they could allow the peaceful transfer of power, is one of the defining scenes of the 1960s. But power isn't always so visible. Often, government agencies act from the shadows.
1: Such is the mystique around the CIA, an intelligence organization comfortable with both domestic and international intrigue. George Herbert Walker Bush, long before he became president, was well acquainted with the CIA. He was made director of the agency in 1976.
0: While H.W. claimed this was his first-ever role in the agency, records made in the days after the JFK assassination tell a different story.
1: According to investigative journalist Russ Baker, on the day after John F. Kennedy was murdered in 1963, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover wrote a memo which mentioned an employee of the CIA named George Bush.
0: The briefing detailed worries that the FBI had about anti-Castro Cuban exiles living in the United States. Now that Kennedy was dead, Hoover feared those exiles might choose to invade Cuba without authorization from the US
1: government. This was a unique memo given the extraordinary historical circumstances. But the fact that it mentioned a George Bush as a part of the CIA makes it even more noteworthy.
0: At the time, H.W. traveled the world extensively for his work with Zapata Petroleum Corporation, an oil company he co-founded in 1953, with financial backing from his father, Prescott. At least, that's the official story.
1: Later, H.W. wrote vaguely in his autobiography about these business trips, but he never specified exactly where he went. What's more, Zapata at this time had very few oil rigs, so it was unclear why H.W. needed to do quite so much traveling.
0: Unless all this globe hopping provided H.W. with a perfect cover for his double life as a world traveling agent of the
1: CIA. That's what some theorists claim, and they may be onto something.
0: In the early 1960s, Zapata's activities were focused largely in the Caribbean, Maybe not so coincidentally, the CIA was also in the Caribbean at the time, suppressing the anti-Castro-Cuban exiles in the wake of Kennedy's assassination.
1: Lastly, an unnamed intelligence source who worked with the agency through the 1960s told journalist Joseph McBride that H.W. was involved in those suppressions. If true, he was working on much more than oil rigs.
0: Unsurprisingly, the only one who has said very little about this time in his life is H.W. himself. If he was secretly working for the CIA, he wouldn't want anyone to know. But his work as a secret agent could explain another topic about which he's been very quiet. What he was doing in Dallas on the day of JFK's assassination.
1: When asked later in his life, H.W. claimed not to remember where he was that day. This is surprising when you consider how singular an event the assassination was in American history. Despite his silence, however, others remember H.W.'s whereabouts.
0: Aubrey Irby was a one-time vice president of the Tyler, Texas, Kiwanis Club. According to Irby, H.W. was in Tyler to give a political speech that day. No one remembers what HW spoke about exactly, because only a few minutes into the speech, as Kiwanis members were primed to listen, HW learned that
1: Kennedy had been shot and his speech tapered off. He told the assembled about the awful news and then said he couldn't continue his speech on such a somber day. But, for some reason, just a couple hours later, he took a plane to Dallas, the very city where Kennedy was shot.
0: According to Bush biographer Kitty Kelly, the flight to Dallas had been previously scheduled, but it was an odd decision however you looked at it. Tyler, Texas is less than a two hours drive from Dallas.
1: HW could have easily taken a car. Flying might not have even been faster on that day. This is because H.W.'s plane had to circle Dallas Love Field Airport more than once to allow one of the planes used by the presidential contingent to take off.
0: After H.W. finally landed, his activities in Dallas are unclear, but some have speculated that he was taking something of a victory lap. Why? According to certain theories, H.W. wanted Kennedy dead on behalf of the CIA.
1: In Russ Baker's book, Family of Secrets, Baker cites JFK's dislike of the CIA as a reason that the powerful and secretive agency would want to have the president assassinated. Kennedy was humiliated by the CIA's failure to handle the Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba in 1961, As a result, he was having conversations with his advisors about potentially dissolving the agency entirely.
0: To the CIA, this was a profound existential threat. If they didn't have the faith and support of the president, not much else mattered. Their careers and livelihood were on the lines, and given that Kennedy's threat did not seem idle, they may have had reason to make the threat go away.
1: Aside from his role in the CIA, H.W. had another reason to help the agency get rid of the president. Political differences. In
0: 1963, Texas was shaping up to be a battleground state for the 1964 election. If JFK and Democrats won in the state, Kennedy would most likely revoke something called the Oil Depletion Allowance, a law that allowed oil barons to take huge tax breaks. And H.W. was an oil baron who wanted his tax breaks to remain firmly intact.
1: However, despite having a motive of sorts, we can't be certain that H.W. had any role in Kennedy's death.
0: The circumstantial evidence is there. The pre-planned flight to Dallas, the political motivation, the possible connection to the CIA... All of it paints a picture of H.W. potentially being involved.
1: But we don't actually know for sure that H.W. was a member of the CIA. And since the whole theory hinges on his involvement with the agency, determining whether he was indeed an agent is of utmost importance.
0: That's true. Let's dive in. During H.W.'s vice presidency, there were numerous press investigations into the unearthed Hoover memo from 1963 that named a George Bush as a member of the CIA. However, in response, an agency spokeswoman, Sharon Basso, told the Associated Press that the memo was referring to a different man named George William Bush.
1: When journalists pressed further, the agency stated that George William Bush was no longer an employee. Despite being the most powerful intelligence organization in the world, they said that they didn't know his whereabouts.
0: But in 1988, journalist Joseph McBride managed to find a George William Bush who worked for the CIA in 1963 at the
1: time the memo was written. However, this George William Bush went on to tell McBride that though he had worked for the CIA, he was only a low-level administrative employee, or in his words, a gopher. As a result, he never had been privy to or received any briefings, not by a long shot. He insisted that the memo referenced an employee other than him.
0: It seems plausible then that it was George H.W. Bush that the memo was referring to. Considering his later appointment to director of the agency, as well as his offhand comment in his 1987 autobiography that he'd come to the CIA with some knowledge as to how it operated, it's almost likely that he was involved with the agency in some way.
1: Perhaps. But it seems improbable that hw himself was involved in kennedy's death whatever political antipathy he had toward the president in 1963 partaking in his assassination feels like a stretch it's highly unlikely there's no hard evidence to support that portion of the theory
0: just because it feels unlikely doesn't mean it is but with that said I know what you mean. I see no persuasive argument for H.W.'s involvement in Kennedy's assassination. However, I do see strong clues that point to H.W. being a member of the CIA from the early 1960s on.
1: I think you've convinced me, at least of that. Personally, I'd give the theory about his CIA involvement a seven out of 10. But for the theory that he had something to do with the assassination, I'm giving that a two out of 10.
0: I'm with you there. I'm giving the assassination theory a two out of 10 as well. As for his early CIA membership theory, I'm giving that a nine out of 10. You don't become the director of the CIA without prior experience.
1: Well, if he was an early agent of the CIA, HW learned how to keep the truth hidden from some of the best in the world. And we need only to look to his eldest son, George W. Bush, to see how that family tradition continued.
0: Next up, we'll consider W.'s motivations for the 2003 invasion of Iraq.
2: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all.
0: George W. Bush followed in his father H.W.'s footsteps and was elected as the next president of the United States, becoming only the second presidential son in history to do so. Many Americans saw him as an easygoing and jovial, if somewhat improvisational, leader, but his administration was severely tested
1: by the September 11th attacks. W. responded to those acts of terrorism by declaring a war on terror, As commander-in-chief, W. led the invasion of Afghanistan in 2001 and then began to prepare for the invasion of Iraq.
0: But even before the war officially began, the decision to invade was unpopular around the world. Many saw no need for yet another conflict in Iraq. But the U.S. government, with W. at the helm, claimed that
1: Iraq possessed weapons of mass destruction. But the truth was, they didn't. We know that to be undeniably true. The intelligence documents that the administration cited as evidence for those so-called weapons of mass destruction turned out to be a hoax. And what's more, no one knew who forged the documents or why they had done so.
0: Now, it's not easy to fool a government with access to maybe the best technology and intelligence information in the world, so it is suspicious that the original investigation into those documents didn't reveal
1: that they were fake. Unless the government knew they were fake and intentionally pulled the wool over the eyes of citizens everywhere.
0: But weapons of mass destruction weren't the only reason the Bush administration cited for invading. They claim there were also links between Saddam Hussein's government and Al Qaeda, the radical terrorist group behind the September 11th attacks. But after the invasion, no conclusive evidence of any link was found. This led many to wonder why W and his staff had made their claims in the first place.
1: According to conspiracy theorists, The answer was simple, oil.
0: In the years before the invasion, Iraq had the second largest reserve of oil of any country in the world. But Hussein's regime was at the helm. And at the time, the U.S. was punishing him with economic sanctions. So he decided to fight their pugnacity with his
1: own aggressive policy. In the year 2000, Hussein declared that Iraq would stop using American currency, which was the world's standard up to that point, to trade oil. Instead, his country started trading barrels of oil in euros, the currency of Europe.
0: While this move would hurt his own country by causing some modest damage to the Iraq economy, it was still worth it to Hussein, because it could also weaken the US dollar, He hoped that it might cause other oil-producing countries
1: to move away from the dollar as well. And it wasn't lost on independent observers either. After 9-11, numerous political commentators started writing that this so-called petrodollar war between the U.S. and Iraq was the real reason for the pending invasion of that country. And their claims weren't unfounded.
0: For W, an invasion of Iraq for its oil reserves meant restoring balance to the commodities markets. It meant making sure that no dictator like Hussein could mess with a natural resource that made American cities move. Lastly, it meant putting the American dollar back in charge of the oil industry.
1: Oil was in W's blood. He was a former oilman, having ridden the boom and bust in West Texas in the 1980s. And as we discussed, his father, H.W., had run the Zapata Petroleum Corporation.
0: What's more, W.'s presidential cabinet was one of the most oil executive heavy lineups in White House history. A remarkable number of them were millionaires with strong ties to the petroleum industry.
1: All of this is to say that when looking at opportunities to boost America's standing in a post 9-11 world, neither Bush nor his cabinet would have failed to notice the incredible amount of oil wealth which Iraq contained.
0: If they decided to fight a petrodollar war against Hussein, not only could they restore balance to the markets, but they could potentially take that oil for themselves.
1: Plans for exploiting Iraq's oil started to materialize even before 9-11. According to a 2005 report by the BBC, only weeks after W was elected in 2001, secret discussions began between the administration and American petroleum experts.
0: They had aims of taking over Iraq's oil reserves by whatever means necessary. If they did so, it might allow the Western powers, or at least the United States, to rival OPEC, an organization of oil-producing nations.
1: OPEC's stated goal was to ensure stabilized oil markets. Notably, however, the United States was not a member. So, they wanted to take control over oil prices away from OPEC. To the Bush administration, there seemed no better tool for that task than Iraq. One of
0: the consultants who was at the secret Bush administration meetings prior to his election told the BBC that plans for a coup d'etat in Iraq were discussed. Even more surprising, representatives of the administration reportedly interviewed a small group of potential replacement candidates for Saddam Hussein
1: should he, in fact, be deposed. It was chillingly prescient because with the events of 9-11, W and his administration had to have seen a convergence of opportunity and necessity.
0: And in 2003, the invasion of Iraq began.
1: No weapons of mass destruction were found, but coalition forces did locate the oil After they defeated Hussein's regime, the U.S. installed a governing council comprised of Iraqi and tribal leaders. Even though the war was supposedly over, the actions of that new council continued to amplify tensions in Iraq. That's because
0: the council made plans to sell off the country's oil. The people of Iraq caught wind of this and the insurgency began.
1: After the war, Bombings started at oil pipelines and refineries, and the U.S. responded with greater force. But that didn't curtail the insurgency, nor did their attacks halt the Bush administration's consideration of privatization.
0: However, those efforts to commercialize Iraq's oil stalled, at least initially. Philip Carroll, who took charge of oil production in Iraq for the American government, refused to allow privatization and the oil industry
1: obeyed his order. But behind the scenes, some in W's administration kept trying. We know this because only
0: a handful of years after the invasion began, Bush administration allies
1: went on record saying as much. In March 2008, General John Abizade was at a roundtable discussion at Stanford University. At the time, Abizade had just retired from his position as commander of United States Central Command, which he held in the first years of the Iraq War.
0: The discussion centered around natural resources and the effect of war on them. During this talk, General Abizade said, in regards to the invasion of Iraq, Of course it's about oil. We can't
1: really deny that. This was either a slip-up or, more likely, an indication that the administration was becoming less concerned with hiding the true purpose of the war. Only
0: months later, something very similar happened. This time, it was from a former ally of the administration. In July 2008, Republican Senator Chuck Hagel spoke at the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C.
1: At that talk, he said that there was not a single Middle East leader who urged W to invade Iraq. And what's more, it should be obvious to everyone that the invasion and subsequent war wasn't about creating peace at all. Instead, it was about the acquisition of oil, plain and simple. While
0: Chuck Hagel was a critic of the administration at the time, he was a solidly conservative Republican, so his opinion on the war wasn't partisan. Even he was willing to see the truth about his country's role in the conflict.
1: Ironically, after all of the effort of starting a war, W's plan to exploit Iraqi oil never quite worked. And this was in part due to the insurgency that arose after the American-led invasion.
0: It was a matter of numbers. In order to take Iraq's oil, not only did the US have to invade, but they had to hold the oil fields. This meant that they would have had to use their soldiers to secure all the refineries and pipelines across a country larger than the state
1: of California. The only scenario where an oil takeover would have been possible is if the United States annexed Iraq wholesale and then devoted thousands of permanent troops to oil security. And W's cabinet and the president himself would have foreseen this. They should have known it was impossible before they even began the invasion.
0: On the contrary, I believe the evidence shows that they did foresee it. It's just that once W had troops on the ground, the complications multiplied. Then it became clear that his true reason for invading Iraq, securing its oil, wouldn't come to pass. The evidence for this theory is really strong. The only thing we're lacking is W admitting to it outright, but in a way he did.
1: On May 22nd, 2003, two months after the invasion began, Using the powers of his presidency, W issued Executive Order 13303. It appeared to clear the way for utilization of Iraqi oil by providing an unbreakable legal shield to anyone engaged in work related to the oil industry in that country.
0: Many have argued that the purpose of this order was to allow unfettered exploitation of Iraq, without any mercenaries or contractors having to fear legal repercussions. Coming as it did from the pen of W, this was his strongest statement that oil was the impetus for the war. Because of this, and all the other evidence mentioned, I'm giving this theory a 10 out of 10. I have no doubts that oil was W's reason for the Iraq war. He just didn't succeed in getting it.
1: As for me, I'd like to provide a tiny benefit of the doubt for W. Maybe it wasn't the primary reason for the invasion, but at the very least, I think it must have been secondary. That's why I'm giving this theory a 9 out of 10.
0: Of all the conspiracies swirling around the Bush dynasty and their influence on history, this is the one we find most convincing.
1: Prescott Bush's exhumation of Geronimo's skull seems likely as well, but it's not as airtight as W's war for oil. As for H.W.'s involvement in the Kennedy assassination, that theory seems pretty unlikely, though we must admit that his potential long-time membership in the CIA is intriguing.
0: Regardless, the Bush family has for decades now given ample inspiration to conspiracy theorists everywhere. At the same time, some would say that they've had a net positive influence
1: on America. Wherever you land on that debate, one must admit that the Bush family soared to great heights in the American hierarchy. And as a result... They provide an example of where an ambitious family can go if they're willing to wade into the mire of politics and possibly get their hands dirty.
0: Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back Monday with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other originals from ParCast for free on Spotify.
1: Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story.
0: And the official story isn't always the truth.
1: Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler and is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Nicholas Swart, with writing assistance by Allie Wicker, and stars Molly Brennenberg and Carter Roy.
0: Remember to follow the newest Spotify original from ParCast, Our Love Story. Every Tuesday, catch an intimate glimpse inside a real-life romance with couples recounting the highlights and hardships that define their love. Listen to Our Love Story free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.